good morning to you. Three minutes after 8 o'clock. Welcome to Money for Nothing or Funny Paper. I'm Brian Curtis. In headlines this morning, Bank of America looks set to pay $17 billion in fines. Standard Chartered says that it is facing more fines in the United States as it announces a 20% drop in earnings. And the IBM Apple deal suffers a hiccup as China jilts Apple iPads for procurement. Those stories coming up. In markets, safe haven assets pop a little overnight. Russia hits back at the West with a ban on food. European stocks drop further and two key mergers fall by the wayside. Details shortly. To get us started, a little food for thought. They are, in fact, still too big to fail. So we still have to manage that. But I don't think the right answer is to break them up. That's John Thane, the former head of Merrill Lynch, uh, now CEO at CIT. And are we in a credit bubble? One of the problems with bubbles is you can it's very hard to know. And so you only see bubbles after they burst, which, of course, then they become obvious. But it's very hard to see them in advance. Well, many think that is not true and that central banks should act to control excesses. So we'll take a look at that as well. And this locally. Ms. Lemmer may have made use of confidential information of the government. It is suspected that she may have committed misconduct in public office. That's Democratic Party Chief Executive Lam Chuk Tin on a case involving the Assistant Director of Lands, Anita Lam. Mr. Lam, the voice you just heard and no relation, used to be an investigator at the ICAC. So again, that coming up. Guests on our program this morning include Richard Harris, CEO of Port Shelter Investment Management, and Michael Every of Robobank on markets. We'll also take a look at territorial tensions between China and Japan as they ratchet up with Mark Michelson of APCO Worldwide. And later, we'll take a look at online security issues in the age of cloud computing. For that, we'll be speaking with data security expert Bill McGee of Trend Micro. And a little bit more on the pace of growth in the U.S. economy. This is yet another sign that the economy is normalizing six years after the recession ended. The effervescent Chris Rupke there from Bank of Tokyo Mitsubishi UFJ. And we'll get a look at markets for you now uh, here in Asia as we uh, scan how they've opened. Uh, in Australia, the main index, the ASX 200, is up a couple of points at 5506. Seoul is also just barely higher. And Japan, the futures have been down all money. We usually get the cash read in a couple more minutes, so I'll tell you about that in a minute. The dollar-yen, 102.14. The euro is at 1.338 U.S. dollars. And the pound sterling now, 13 Hong Kong dollars and 6 cents, so not too much change for the pound. As you mentioned overnight, a little bit of a pop-up in uh, safe haven assets. Gold was up more than $20 an ounce, just slipping a little here in Asia, now down about 40 at 1305 And oil prices, 104.59, just a bit higher than in yesterday's trade. Well, let's take a closer look now at some of the top stories, and then we'll bring in our guests. Bank of America is reportedly set to pay U.S. authorities 16 to $17 billion in fines to settle a case on mortgage-backed securities. Agencies say the bank would pay about $9 billion in cash and the rest in consumer relief. The outlines of the deal were reportedly reached in a phone call between the Attorney General in the United States, Eric Holder, and the bank's CEO, Brian Moynihan. Well, back to John Thane for a moment. Given the bank excesses and these huge fines that they have suffered, does he think that the big banks should be broken up? 
No, I don't believe they're trying to do that. And I'm not sure that there's only one view at the Fed. But these banks are the biggest banks, and they compete with other banks in the world. And I don't think it's the right answer to break them up. Now, they are, in fact, still too big to fail. And I think the results of this, uh, of this orderly liquidation prove that. Uh, so we still have to manage that. But I don't think the right answer is to break them up. On Wall Street, stocks were little changed, although the banks were a little bit higher. And there were two big mergers that were dropped. That weighed on investors' sentiment. And the tensions are still high over Ukraine. Mr. Thane thinks that conditions have become a little frothy. Some of that is starting to erode. So you were seeing leverage get somewhat higher. You're seeing lending standards starting to deteriorate some. It's not back to where it was in 2007, but there definitely is some erosion occurring. Well, the S&P 500 rose for the day, but less than one point to 1920. The Dow Jones Industrial Average up 13 points at 16,443. Mr. Thane thinks the cycle of recovery still has some room to run. Because of the size of the, of the financial crisis and besides the size of the bubble that burst, I think it's likely that the cycle will last longer this time. Uh, but we're, we're not at the excessive level yet. Okay, so as we mentioned, stocks were a little bit higher in the U.S. They were a little bit lower in Europe, and we'll give you details uh, in a few minutes. Uh, exports in the United States did pick up in the second quarter. This is yet another sign that the economy is normalizing six years after the recession ended. The trade deficit narrowed in June to $41.5 billion from $44.7 billion in May, which may revise 4% GDP in the second quarter a little higher, not that it needs it. The good news in this report, which should be the focus, is the new all-time record for exports of U.S. goods and services to the rest of the world. June exports rose 0.1% to $195.8 billion, 70% is goods and 30% services, and are up 2.6% from last year. And that again, Chris Rupke from Bank of Tokyo Mitsubishi, UFJ. Russian President Vladimir Putin has ordered restrictions on food imports. It's an effort to strike back at the United States and other countries that have imposed sanctions on Russia. A NATO spokesman says Russia has amassed about 20,000 troops along the border with eastern Ukraine. So that's the backdrop. Let's say good morning to our first guest this morning, Richard Harris, Chief Executive Officer, Port Shelter Investment Management. Richard, good morning. Good morning, Brian. And nice to have you with us here in our studios in Broadcasting House. Uh, so the environment is um, strained a little bit. Uh, investor sentiment is uh, nervous with the tensions over Ukraine with Russia. The big worry, I think, in the last 24 hours is whether or not Russia might actually go so far as to invade Ukraine. Do you think that's likely? I think it'll be very difficult for them to do that. And exactly how much would they invade? You might see them having, say, uh, a protected area in, in eastern Ukraine, but it would probably be relatively small. Um, but I think it would be very ill-advised. I mean, the tensions that would erupt from that would be quite severe. And although so far 
economically, uh, the, the world economy hasn't really been affected by this, um, except on the margin. I think that that would be uh, quite significant. Do you think that would cause a major correction in, in marks? We've already seen in Germany the DAX is down 10%, so technically in correction. Other European markets have suffered as well, but Germany has the closest relationship economically with Russia. What about the United States or even out here? Would we see a major correction? Well, I think the thing is it all depends. Um, an invasion, of course, would be very bad news. And I can see the markets coming off. But, you know, often these political issues are less important than the underlying economic issues. And it, it go again, if we see economic growth impacted by this kind of geopolitical uh, effect, then, yes, I can see the markets coming off. So far, we haven't seen world markets or world economies are affected too much. Maybe know? that's why we've seen Germany down 10% as a strong relationship with Russia, whereas the United States, the trade is is much less, so it hasn't been impacted as much. Well, that's right. And of course, Germany has this big sensitivity uh, because they use so much Russian gas. Um, and that is a major uh, card that the Russians have over Western Europe. So we have a lot of ground to cover today. Let's set that aside for the moment. Uh, as you look out over the investment landscape right now, what are your chief concerns? What do you think about the most when you look at um, in putting money to work? Well, the big headwind is is still going to be interest rates in the U.S. I mean, we were talked uh, at this time last year. We talked a lot about taper tantrums and whether the tapering would have much effect on the market. And I didn't think it probably would, because as growth came in, the tapering would come off and people wouldn't really notice it. The interest rate story, however, is completely a different idea because you've got uh, something that historically has caused carnage in the markets and how that's going to pan out has yet to be seen. Isn't it amazing that about 10 days ago we were um, looking over some economic data in the U.S. and worried that rates might go up sooner than expected? Now we're talking uh, about possibility of recession in Europe and conditions in the United States being quite iffy. So, I mean, what is it? Is it, is it are we getting better or are we, are we stumbling back? Well, this is the whole thing. Uh, you've just got to love economics because it's a whole sense of balance on both sides. You've so much psychology on one it, side. Yeah. And then you've got uh, the interest rate issue. You know, if we have too much growth, will interest rates go up? Uh, and there's a huge balance. And really, we're in a race between are we going to see sufficient global growth continue uh, to allow interest rates to go up? Um, uh, and the ideal thing is we have quite a lot of growth and we have uh, moderate interest rates to the, the, that allow for that growth as we go along. If they don't happen in that particular sequence, then I think that's bad for the markets. But certainly, as you were saying a minute earlier, with Germany already reacting, the markets tend to see this in advance. And we may see rather sluggish markets, say, between now and the end of the year because of these concerns. OK, I've got Michael Every waiting in the wings and we'll bring him in in just a moment. But uh, as for you, would you be what would you be looking at now if, if you uh, were to put, say, uh, some money into markets? Would you look at um, markets that have been down like China, Hong Kong? Would you dip into Germany now where it has uh, suffered, you know, a 10 percent correction? Or is it too early there given Russia-Ukraine tensions? Or what would it be? Well, I think we're coming into cherry-picking markets now. We've certainly seen that um, uh, that, that some of these markets have, uh, uh, have uh, held off. 
Um, uh, I think the low-hanging fruit's already been had. Last year, we saw a big move in the markets. Uh, this year, it's been much more muted. And I rather suspect that in this cycle, we've seen the best of it. What we're looking at now is specific opportunities, cherry-picking, buying markets when they're low, uh, maybe selling them with a little bit higher, and looking for stock-specific ideas. So all of those guys in ETFs uh, are probably not going to have such an easy ride from now on. Okay, lots on the local front to look at. Michael Every, head of financial markets research for the Asia Pacific at Rabobank, joins us. A very good morning to you, Michael. Okay, yes, we've got you on the phone. wasn't quite sure if you were in Admiralty or on the phone. You should come into our studios more. <laughs> and uh, we, uh, we look forward to those visits. Um, let me put that same question to you. What is most on your mind this morning as you look out across the investment landscape? Well, I think the previous speaker just really hit the nail on the head. We've got uh, key decisions that have to be made on two different fronts. Obviously, in the Kremlin, the decision is do they or don't they invade? And uh, at this particular moment, everyone who normally spends their time looking at lines going up and down on the screen pretends we understand how tanks and aeroplanes move uh, and what will or won't happen. And uh, frankly, we don't know. We have to wait and see. And the other one is the global backdrop of uh, the Federal Reserve and its, and its decision about when it moves towards a rate hiking cycle and how aggressive that rate hiking cycle will be. And really, that's of fundamental importance to every single market. Knowing Janet Yellen through the speeches that she's given and uh, the commentary after the Fed meetings, uh, it seems like she's more focused on wages now than a lot of other things. It doesn't seem she's too concerned about inflation. The official numbers don't show inflation running high. Can we uh, deduce that they will move a little bit more slowly than what we feared a couple of weeks back and uh, rates won't change until the middle of next year? Well, that's my view personally, because I think if we look at the data coming out of the U.S. at the moment, they're very mixed. And uh, I've written in my research that actually, uh, without trying to stretch the metaphor too far, it's a bit of a Schrodinger's cat of an economy at the moment. We're not quite sure if it's alive or if it's dead. Um, and it can be either at the same time until we open up the box and have a look, which is obviously what the Fed have to do. But uh, once they open it up, if they've made the wrong decision, it's going to be very painful for everybody. Uh, and I, I think actually that it's basically a reflection of the fact that this is not the same U.S. it was before we went into the crisis for a number of structural reasons. And that monetary policy really is going to have to reflect that for a very considerable time going forward. We may get extreme froth in some areas, and I, I certainly think we are trying, or we are seeing bubbles in, in some areas, definitely. But that's actually part of what the Fed is trying to achieve, because it can't get traction anywhere else in the economy. And how closely do you look at Hong Kong and China? And do you think that a lot of money is coming here because... You know, money is looking for yield. It's looking for something that isn't frothy, that isn't too high. And Hong Kong and China equity prices haven't been high. Well, if we talk about Hong Kong, obviously the reaction or the, the chain reaction for the U.S. is purely that the Hong Kong dollar is pegged to the U.S. dollar. So therefore, you know, the U.S. keeps money very easy. Naturally, that's going to have an easy conduit into, into Hong Kong. China itself, I think, a bit of a, bit of a mixed picture there. It's also got key decisions to make in terms of how it's going to grapple with the equally large imbalances and structural problems it has in its own economy, which are very much a mirror image of what the U.S. has got, but in a slightly distorted way. Um, and yes, at the, you know, temporarily, we are seeing money starting to go back in there again since the, uh, the stealth stimulus was introduced and made everyone think we're going to have a nice soft landing. But I think that could be reversed quite quickly if they come to the uh, conclusion that actually the property market in China looks about as worrying as it did in the U.S. back in 2006, 2007. 
So do you think that this um, run that we've seen continues, um, given all that um, that you've just said? Well, I think if you consider how problematic the underlying structural problems in the Chinese economy are, and the fact that even though the U.S. are likely to be uh, very, very moderate in terms of how they hike rates, they are going to eventually start hiking. Uh, I think if you put those two in the balance, it has to suggest that the uh, the Chinese equity market is not going to go too much higher. Mm. So you'd agree with um, with Richard that uh, we've probably seen the best of, of the gains. Um, do either of you two think that we're about ready to see a major correction in equity markets, that uh, the S&P and the Dow will follow uh, the DAX? Well, I think it really depends on whether we have any unknown unknowns, as they, they say in the industry, because uh, the markets have discounted quite a lot, and I think that there is still enough underlying growth. I'm not sure Schrodinger's cat is dead. I think it may be sleeping uh, at times, but, um, uh, but I'm not sure it's dead. So I think there is some underlying growth, and most of the economic figures do seem, still seem to be in the blue rather than the red. Okay, that sounds sensible, but I don't bring you guys on to just be sensible, but to have a view of of course, everything depends on what happens in the future. But do you think we're going to get a correction or no? Correction, yes, but crash, no. No. I can't see that happening. And how about you, Michael? Um, I think we're almost certain to get a correction. And I think that the longer we continue to be the longer we continue to stay at these very elevated levels, the greater the chance of a serious crash actually is. Yeah, the funny thing is that it seemed like two weeks ago we might get a correction based on rate fears. Now it seems like we might get a correction based on geopolitical concerns. You may have noticed overnight uh, safe haven uh, assets did get a little bit of a bid. The yen was up, uh, so we see that. We see gold higher by about $20 or so, slipping a little bit now. Uh, oil firm, a little bit higher, but not too much. And treasuries up. The yield on the 10-year treasury now is at 246, uh, 2.46%, which seems to indicate that people are a little nervous. Well, I, I often look at that as a benchmark, that basically if the 10-year treasury starts to sell off and we see those yields marching higher, that itself is an indication that fundamentally the bond market, which in my experience is a much calmer and more rational beast than the equity market, is starting to assess that the U.S. economy really has turned the corner. But until we start seeing that happening, I, I don't really believe in the fundamentals that are pushing equities that much higher. If we look at some of the P.E. ratios in the U.S. in particular, I think they are extremely stretched. Um, some of the tech firms are up in the high hundreds. So they must be expecting some absolutely incredible increase in earnings going forward uh, against a global backdrop, which is hardly the most positive. One of the things that we saw over the past uh, six months or so was a pickup in M&A activity, uh, mergers and acquisitions. Just here in the last uh, day or so, we've seen a couple of big uh, moves. Fox dropped its bid to acquire Time Warner, and Sprint has abandoned its bid to acquire T-Mobile. Now, I know these are, are U.S. stories, uh, Although in the entertainment with uh, Time Warner and um, Fox, those are big global players. But anyway, we've seen these couple of um, mergers dropped. And before we talk about whether or not that is a sign of anything, let me get some comment from Craig Moffat from Moffat Nathanson on the Sprint deal. We never thought this deal um, had any chance to happen, and so I can't say I'm terribly surprised, but it seems like um, in the run-up to, to trying to do the transaction with T-Mobile, with Sprint all but abandoned uh, its plan B, which is yeah. run the business. Um, they have a lot of wood to chop with respect right. to fixing their network, fixing their pricing, fixing their brand. Um, it's going to be a long road. 
So back to you, Michael. Um, does the uh, the M and A activity continue, or maybe are we seeing a signal now that uh, that 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 uh, sprint in uh, in mergers and acquisitions uh, is over for the time being? Well, it's probably too early to tell, but it, it wouldn't surprise me if that's a leading indicator because these kind of mega deals only tend to happen generally when the global liquidity floodgates are wide open. And as soon as there's any indication that those liquidity floodgates might be being closed slightly or that the, uh, the global backdrop is a bit more risky than it had been presumed to be because fundamentals are poking through like an iceberg out of the water through the, through the liquidity, they tend to be called off. How about you, Richard? Uh, do you watch mergers and acquisitions very closely? Yes, and this has been a good environment to do it because growth is low and where do you get growth at, at this sort of stage uh, unless you acquire somebody? But they, they did fail for different reasons. Sprint fell over apparently because of regulatory issues um, and the Fox Time Warner thing just seemed to be kind of bad blood. weird all the way around. It was it just seemed bad to be blood. A decision by one guy to offer a very large amount of money and when he was rebuffed he, he, he took his football away and decided not to play. Um, <laughs> so I think you probably have to look at that as a one-off at the moment. And Standard Chartered, with its earnings out um, down 20% or so, that might worry some people who are quite keen on on uh, markets, you know, emerging markets. Um, so Standard Chartered said that it's adjusted pre-tax profit, uh, which takes out some of the adjustments to the value of the bank's own debt, dropped 20% to $3.3 billion in the first half of the year. And there's also this quite interesting story um, from Standard Chartered saying that it faces further U.S. fines over over efforts to block money laundering, and uh, it, it revealed that as it uh, revealed these earnings down. Uh, HSBC's earnings weren't that exciting, Richard, and now Standard Chartered uh, profits down 20%. Um, also an indicator things aren't so good here? Well, I think it does reflect a slowdown in the emerging markets in general. I mean, Standard Chartered, of course, is extremely uh, sensitive to, to those sort of markets. They've had a fantastic run over the last few years. The management have squeezed enormous value out of that business. Uh, and sooner or later, things have to slow down a bit. And I think we're just seeing a reflection of slowdown in the market and maybe management having got to the end of the stage where they can squeeze the business and, uh, and are looking for new things. Michael? Um, I would broadly concur, <laughs> to be honest. I mean, if we look at the uh, emerging markets, frankly, China, I think, okay, they've stabilized near term. But I think we can see that the the trend in growth is going to be lower there going forward as they deal with structural issues. Brazil is already very slow growth. Russia is uh, on, the, on the cusp of a war. Okay, India is a good news story we can look forward to, but I don't think they can put all their eggs or their earnings eggs in one basket. Okay, let's, and, let, and it, let, let's get some comments from the bank's uh, executive director and CEO in Asia, Jaspal Bindra. He was asked when the bank's revenue and profits would return to growth. Clearly, the environment externally is quite uh, uncertain right now, and uh, the uh, situation is difficult to predict. Uh, but what uh, I can uh, sort of uh, give you some uh, guidance is that uh, we will uh, sort of look to uh, the guidance we have provided earlier, which says that uh, the full year profits for this year will be down on 2013. However, the profits in the second half of 14 should be ahead of those in the second half of 13. I think um, 2015 is too far to call right now. So that's the CEO for Asia, Jasper Bindra. The bank CEO for Greater China, Benjamin Hung, was asked how the bank planned to boost business in China. 
first of all, I think client flows are uh, going forward, if anything, will increase. Whether it's client going into China or Chinese clients coming out to China, from China to the rest of the group, this is where the bank can better align ourselves in terms of providing solutions and capturing uh, some of these um, opportunities. Secondly, I think we are also trying to position for China's opening up in terms of its reform, in terms of its RMB, in terms of its capital accounts. And this is where there are a lot of things that the bank currently are doing to make sure that we are well positioned to capture China's opening up. Benjamin Hong, the CEO for China. Richard, it just seems like we're getting more and more indications that um, the bank industry is just not doing that well. Is, is that a horrible business to be in at the moment? Well, I'm not so sure it is. If you look at uh, the fines that have been levied on the bank, so far we've got 50 billion US dollars this year alone uh, in terms of fines on the bank. So you have to say that they can't be doing that badly if they're paying those sort of fines. Um, But uh, clearly things are a bit difficult. Although if interest rates go up, the general feeling these days seems to be the banks may benefit from that. But the banks suffer from costs being very high, regulatory costs in particular, compliance, all this now on the banks is very tough. Regulation is very high. I mean, they're really getting tough in the United States. Uh, and, you know, labor is uh, tough. They're, they're not positioned well to handle this surge in technology. You see Amazon and, and uh, rather Alibaba and Tencent out here making a big push into financial services. Uh, It seems like there are a lot of hurdles for the banks to clear. There there are. And one of the biggest one, of course, is the buildup of the shadow banking sector, whereas you have private companies or different companies who are cash rich looking to lend money. Uh, And that's obviously going to take some of the bank's lunch. Um, And they're not as regulated as heavily as the banks. So it's going to be quite difficult for them to move forward. But generally, I know from some of the uh, uh, banking charges that I see uh, on my statements, they don't do too badly. Yeah, fees and charges up there. Michael Every, uh, you work for Rabobank, so you probably won't say too much against uh, the banking industry. But banks are a tough business right now. Uh, They are, as you said, uh, I I'll ask uh, not to say too much, but I think you hit a lot of nails on the head with what you just said a moment ago. Yeah. Okay. I love it when I ask and answer my own question. That's actually a function of um, you guys that that, uh, work for these big banks uh, have to be a little bit careful with what you say. Okay, Michael, so we're just about um, up to news time here at 830. Uh, What is your best investment idea at the moment? Uh, at the moment, to be honest with you, I think uh, it's a question of preservation of capital. I think we're in a, on the cusp of a potentially very volatile time going forward, and I would uh, I'd certainly be moving a portion of my investment into cash and looking to see what's going to be happening over the next 6, 9, 12 months. All right, Michael. Uh, Michael Every, head of financial markets research for the Asia-Pacific at Rabobank, joining us on the line. And Richard Harris is with me. Richard is in the studios here with me, so he'll stay for the whole hour. We have some interesting interviews coming up with Mark Michelson on China-Japan tensions a little bit later. And we'll also be speaking with Bill McGee, Senior Vice President and General Manager for Cloud and Data uh, Center Security at Trend Micro. And so we'll be doing that uh, in the second half hour of the program. Richard, um, so stay with me and let's just get a real quick look at how Asian markets are um, trading. Uh, Japan is slightly lower. The Australian market is just up a couple of points and Seoul just up one point. So not too much there uh, going on. It's a little bit of a day of careful considerations. 
The weather today, mainly cloudy with showers and a few squally thunderstorms. Maximum temperature about 31 degrees with light to moderate southerly winds. What's happening for the next few days? Well, kind of showery conditions expected. Temperatures, again, up around 31, all the way up at 29 now. The latest news with Ben Chad. The government says there's no evidence that Assistant Lands Director Anita Lam had committed any wrongdoing in her purchase of a large plot of farmland in Yunlong, near an area now earmarked for a new town. Ms. Lam had bought the 80,000-square-foot plot two years ago, soon after the government announced a land-use review that ultimately led to the new town project. Damon Pang reports. Ms. Lam and her husband had spent more than $18 million to buy farmland right next to the area that was being evaluated two months after the review was announced. She then sought to maximize the grass floor area of the plot by applying to build four three-story village houses instead of three houses that are both two-story high. The town planning board approved her application last month. The Lands Department said Ms. Lam had declared her purchase according to regulations. There's no evidence she used inside information, and her plot was outside the area under review. The Democratic Party's chief executive, Lam Chuk Ting, a former ICAC investigator, says the anti-graph body should probe the matter. Russian President Vladimir Putin has signed a decree banning or limiting imports of food and agricultural products from countries that have imposed sanctions on Russia because of its continued support of rebels in Ukraine. The BBC's Steve Rosenberg in Moscow has more. According to the Kremlin decree, Russia will restrict imports of food and agricultural products from those countries which have imposed sanctions on Moscow. President Putin has ordered his government to draw up a list of products. It's unclear how quickly this will be done. Imports will either be limited or completely banned. The restrictions are due to last for one year. According to the decree, they are in Russia's national interest. Russia imported 43 billion US dollars worth of food last year. The Nigerian health minister, Onye Bushu Chukwu, said Ebola is a national and international emergency, as five more cases of the disease has been confirmed in the country. All are believed to be health workers who treated a Liberian-American man who died in Nigeria from Ebola last month. The experience of Nigeria has already alerted the world to the fact that any country is actually at risk because there's no country that is not reached by aircraft today. So far, more than 930 people are known to have died of Ebola in four West African countries. But Saudi Arabia has now also confirmed the death of a man suspected to have caught the virus during a recent business trip to Sierra Sierra Leone. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Welcome back to Money for Nothing. I'm Brian Curtis. Uh, Some of the top stories that we've been working with this morning, Bank of America looks set to pay out $17 billion in fines to the U.S. Justice Department. That's over um, mortgage-backed securities. Standard Chartered also facing some more fines in the United States. It announced a 20% drop in earnings. And a little bit later, we'll take a look at IBM Apple, the deal that they uh, put together on business services. Well, it suffered a hiccup now as China has spurned uh, 
Apple's iPads uh, in its procurement. That's a story that's been making the news in the last uh, day, so we'll get to that. We also have a couple of live guests coming up. Bill McGee from Trend Micro on uh, security, um, with uh, on looking at, at security in cloud computing. And also Mark Michelson, Senior Counselor at APCO Worldwide, will be along as well. Tensions between China and Japan. I'd like to just pick up on that last story. Well, in this format, we have the news, of course, at the top and the bottom of the hour, and then we look at some of the stories in greater detail and pick up on that last story that Ben had in our news. And Saudi Arabia says that a man suspected to have caught Ebola during a recent business trip to Sierra Leone has died. The news announced today after the kingdom suspended pilgrimage visas from West African countries. It is trying to uh, prevent the spread. More than 930 people are known to have died from Ebola. Five new cases have been reported in Nigeria. The outbreak there now has been declared a national emergency. The BBC's Tommy Oledipo is at the center of the crisis in Nigeria's biggest city of Lagos. Africa's most populous country is facing a serious threat. It's been more than three weeks after the first case of Ebola here, and now more infections are being recorded. It began with Patrick Sawyer, a Liberian man who showed symptoms of the virus on arrival in Lagos. Some of the people he had contact with are now in isolation after being infected. We have a national emergency. And indeed, everyone in the world is at risk of this disease. Nobody is immune. The experience of Nigeria has already alerted the world to the fact that any country is actually at risk because... There's no country that is not reached by aircraft today. Despite government claims that it's up to the task, there are questions over the existing healthcare challenges, including a nationwide doctor's strike. Authorities are now trying to educate the public on taking precaution. Screening centers are in operation for passengers arriving at Nigeria's main international airports. They're even growing calls for Nigeria to close its borders to prevent more infected people from coming in. A meeting of the World Health Organization will decide whether this outbreak should be treated as a global emergency. The main thing, consequently, then, is really proper facilities. And again, the proper facilities have been what's lacking in West Africa. Proper facilities don't lack in Spain or in the United States, where these patients have been taken. You get them into isolation, you have the proper protective equipment for the medical personnel dealing with them. There is an extremely, extremely low risk of anything happening there. The challenge for us is West Africa. The Ebola virus is in Lagos, but so far the authorities don't know how far it's spread in this densely populated city. The deadly virus has claimed hundreds of lives in West Africa, and now Nigeria faces a huge task to make sure the infections remain at a minimum. Dr. Ben Newman is an Ebola expert at the University of Reading. He says the current outbreak will require a lot of time and money to contain. Ebola is a serious disease, and this is the largest outbreak we've ever seen of this particular kind. In this outbreak alone, we've seen more people infected with Ebola virus Zaire than in all of history uh, leading up to this point. Dr. Newman says it's not really clear why this outbreak has gotten so bad. We don't really know, but the virus seems to be spreading because of fear, because people are moving away from doctors rather than taking doctors' advice. The virus is certainly very bad, but it's very preventable as well. 
To local news now, the government says there is no evidence that an assistant director of lands, Anita Lam, committed any wrongdoing in buying a large plot of farmland in Yunlong near a site earmarked for a new town. Ms. Lam bought the 80,000-square-foot plot two years ago, soon after the government announced a land-use review that ultimately led to the new town project. And as Damon Pang reports, the Democratic Party wants the ICAC to investigate. Ms. Lam oversees several lands administration offices, including the one in Yunlong, which provided its opinion on the use of land in Campton South and Pat Hung as part of the review conducted by the planning department. Ms. Lam and her husband had spent more than $18 million to buy farmland right next to the area that was being evaluated two months after the review was announced. She then sought to maximize the grass floor area of the plot by applying to build four three-story village houses instead of three houses that are both two-story high. The town planning board approved her application last month. The case was first brought to light by the Chinese-language newspaper Ming Pao, which cited a surveyor as saying that Ms. Lam could pocket more than $50 million if the houses were sold along with the farmland, because the houses would be so close to the proposed new town. The Democratic Party's chief executive, Lam Chuck Ting, who previously worked as an investigator for ICAC, says the anti-graft body should probe the matter. Ms. Lam... Uh may have made use of confidential information of the government to purchase a plot of land adjacent to Kempton Development Zone. By doing so, them, the director, may get big profit from the development. It is suspected that she may have committed misconduct in public office, violated the civil servants' guidelines regarding the conflict of interest. But the Lands Department said in response that there's no evidence that Ms. Lam had used insider information to make her purchase. Damon Pang reporting. Quick data check. We've seen uh, some of the markets come back a little bit. The Nikkei is down just 13 points after being down about 80 earlier. In Australia, the index is actually higher now, up a couple of points. And the the Cosby and Seoul is flat for the day. Gold is trading at $1,305.30. And oil price is now 104.70. Richard Harris, Chief Executive Officer at Port Shelter Investment Management, is still with us. About ready to move on to some of our other featured segments. But Richard, before we move on to those segments, uh, didn't get a chance to ask you for your best investment idea at the moment. Well, Michael mentioned cash, which most of us uh, think is pretty wimpy in the investment business to do it. But actually, I think it's probably a pretty good idea. However, I think there will be opportunities. You know, we have seen China, Hong Kong lag substantially. Um, and I think there may be some opportunities there. Uh, as we've seen, other markets have come off quite a bit recently, such as Germany. There'll be other opportunities there. So we're really looking very opportunistic equities um, or, or keeping your powder dry. Um, my guess for this year is we're probably going to see maybe single-digit rise in, in many of the indices. That's maybe 6 7 8 9%, something like that. Uh, at Wall Street at the moment, we're zero for right. the year. Um, so we're looking at fairly modest rises this year in the equity markets. So here in Hong Kong, we're up about 5 or 6% uh, for the year. We struggled for most of it. Uh, so you would also think for, for here, not too much more up? I, I think so. I think we probably have, uh, again, the 5 or 6% in Hong Kong because we've lagged. Um, and the U.S. was extremely strong last year. So I think there's some movement there. But the, um, uh, the options are looking quite tight at the moment. And I think that's one reason why the markets are relatively sluggish. Something that also might be uh, weighing on investors' 
news minds, Japan has warned that China has committed dangerous acts over territorial claims in the East China Sea. Tokyo says that they could lead to unintended consequences in the region. And we're joined by Mark Michelson, senior counselor at APCO Worldwide. Mark, good morning. Morning, Brian. Is this something to be concerned about or is this, you know, kind of regular uh, tensions that we see between Japan and China and it will pass? Well, it, it, it doesn't seem we should be as concerned as we should about some of the problems in the rest of the world that you've just been discussing a little bit earlier. But nonetheless, yeah, I think it it probably is a little bit a uh, source of concern. This is the yearly uh, defense review, which they do every year. But this is a response to uh, China's air defense identification zone, the declaration, and and other other incidents that have occurred. And of course, the problem is, is, is the danger of confrontations and unintended consequences, as the white paper says, because the tensions are high and it's easy for mistakes to be made. Does the white paper use a little stronger language than what we've seen in the past? Well, I'm not sure, but it's interesting what's in there. First of all, the Japanese are are upping their defense budget. Okay, only by 1%, but still higher than it's been in about a decade or so. At the same time, they're adding a, a defense outpost at the westernmost island of Japan, and they're starting an amphibious force that sounds a lot like the U.S. Marines. So, you know, there are little things in here that 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 sound a bit stronger. Yeah, if you're in the State Department for the United States, uh, you feel like you're getting stretched a little bit right yeah, now because you've got new concerns with Russia that a year ago we didn't really uh, think were going to get this bad, uh, particularly now if Russia um, invades Ukraine or even if it sends in uh, under the veil of humanitarian um, assistance, if it sends in large numbers of people to uh, to take care of humanitarian areas, that would really stretch the U.S. Given that now you've got these increased tensions between you know Japan and China. No, a- absolutely. And you know Russia is mentioned in this white paper. It hasn't been mentioned much. And Ukraine, Japan reiterated its opposition to the to the takeover of Crimea. But at the same time, its language was pretty soft because they actually have thought that they may have an opportunity, and they've been thinking this for about 70 years, of settling the long the long uh, dispute over the northern territories with, with Russia that's, that's of course, uh, been, been there since the end of World War II. And if you really step back and look at um, the broader picture, um, does it almost seem that Russia and China now are kind of uh, uh, angling up against um, Europe and the United States and Japan? Yeah, to, to some extent, although the, I think the Russia-China connection is, is not so solid. In many ways, they, they do have differing interests. Well, the gas deal was massive. Gas, gas deal I mean, was that was, that was billion, massive. Yeah, it's, it's really and enormous. We, we talked to, uh, about a week ago about the BRICS coming together and, and forming sort of mini World Bank, IMF sort of organizations, although those are really in the, in the beginning stages now. But at the same time, Obviously, uh, the Chinese are a little uncomfortable with what's going on in in Ukraine because of the implications it might have for its own problems, especially with the uh, with the step up of, of problems in, in Xinjiang and, and related areas and Yunnan and other places. So back to Japan, China directly. What do you worry about the most? Well, I worry uh, I worry about unintended consequences. And that's that's easy to do. For example, the Japanese released information that in in fiscal 2013, the the self defense force scrambled its fighter jets over 800 times, which is the most in in a quarter of a century, and up 250 from the year before. You know, just that that number alone makes you a little bit nervous. Okay, some of that is sort of routine, but when you start to do that. Again, you, you worry about incidents and then how do you react to incidents because 
both sides have a lot of pressure from their domestic audiences. And in both cases, this nationalism is, seems to be playing pretty well. You hate to place uh, blame in any way, but do you think that with uh, Prime Minister Shinzo Abe and his cabinet being a little bit more hawkish and a little bit more nationalistic, that um, this is one of the reasons that these tensions have increased? It, well, it, it certainly is added to the to the mix. But you know, the, uh, you know, I think China has been doing their part too. It's it's hard to say you know where the balance is. It's it's interesting that that uh, Prime Minister Abe's poll numbers have gone down a little bit, in part because of the declaration that Japan should play a more major defensive military role. In other words, by giving, by sending more weapons abroad, by taking place in peacekeeping operations, all those sorts of things, which, you know, have been looked at as a violation of Article 9 of the Japanese Constitution by previous administrations. So that seems to have 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 hurt his poll numbers a little bit, but not dramatically. And I think he really believes this, and he's still pushing in that direction. And at the same time, I think you know the the Chinese Xi Jinping is also making this a a strong tenant for for what he's talking about. And finally, and briefly, uh, you counsel a lot of uh, CEOs in the region. Uh, have you been advising them to? change policy or change the approach at all over this or just to be mindful? I think to be mindful at this point, although in some cases they've, 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 they've had to shift a little bit of their business because of a little bit of a downtick in, in Chinese, Japanese trade and, uh, and also, uh, they've, they've got some pushback when they're trying to, to, uh, perhaps broker business deals between the two. That doesn't happen all the time. So far, I think it's been pretty minor, but I think you have to look at it. And given China's just, uh, vital place in the region economically, uh, this obviously could have a regional and, and global effect. Does it well. perhaps lead a little more manufacturing to Bangladesh, Vietnam, and Indonesia? Well, potentially, although, you know, companies over, the, over time have found that that doesn't always work very well. They've been looking for alternatives for some time to China, especially in other areas, and it's a real mixed picture, So, I think, to this point. All right, Mark, thanks very much for joining us here on Money for Nothing. Mark Michelson, Senior Counselor for APCO Worldwide. Money for Nothing, the time 12 minutes before 9 o'clock. Concerns about online security have come to the fore in recent days. Security experts say a Russian crime gang may have propagated the biggest hack ever in a data breach up to 1.2 billion documents from commercial websites. That's according to many agencies and newspapers, including USA Today. The infiltration is believed to have lasted several months and underscores the vulnerability of web-based documents to attack. Joining us on the program is security expert Bill McGee of Trend Micro. Bill, good morning. Good morning. Oh, there's so much to talk about in this area. I suppose this latest uh, breach, I mean, there's so much that goes back to hackers in Russia and in China. Um, Is this a really major concern now? Yeah, I think we see, you know, every month more and more data breaches of of one sort or another uh, occurring. So, you know, I mean, is it exacerbated that there's so much cloud activity now? All of us have so much of our material in the cloud. Yeah, the 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 increase of the use of the cloud is uh, is relevant. um, But we we don't see the nature of the attacks being very different, whether the data is uh, in an internal data center environment or or the cloud. Uh, But there's just more of it. And there's more of it centralized seems to be the main uh, main challenge. Does this activity set back 
back uh, the Internet of Things a little bit and the Internet of Everything? Well, the Internet of Everything um, is I, – I think of it as the Internet of Everything Else, that uh, if we look at the Internet the last 20 years, mostly we've had people using laptops, desktops, or now mobile devices to access services. Uh, the Internet of Everything are things like thermostats and video cameras and other specific devices that are being Internet-connected. Um, the, the backbone of the Internet of Everything is still a set of servers and applications. But yes, these devices themselves do open up uh, additional challenges and additional potential security problems. What are the actual main ways that the public uh, benefit from the Internet of Everything? Well, I think what, how it's going to uh, – some of those benefits are going to be convenience, are going to be uh, improvements in energy use, uh, in improvements in, in time, uh, potentially spending less time on, on certain activities. So I think time, convenience and, and energy uh, and costs are some of – or saving money are some of the things that, uh, that the consuming public is going to benefit from. Will this create jobs or will this be a job killer? I don't think these devices are going in – unlike previous generations of computing, these devices are going into areas where people didn't do these tasks. So I certainly don't see it as uh, affecting uh, negatively any employment. Um, and certainly it's going to create opportunity for people building and managing these and uh, I guess uh, – Unfortunately, but fortunately for us as a security company, opportunity for security people to help make sure that the these devices can be brought online in a in as secure a way as possible. What would you say to governments that are looking at uh, education expenses going out over the next uh, many years? Do you think that um, that governments lag behind in IT education, and should they get out of the slow lane and into the fast lane? I think everybody needs to move uh, needs to move more quickly with respect to uh, security understanding. Many people are bringing new products, new services, uh, even the use of the cloud itself, uh, new applications online, uh, without necessarily the uh, a, a good understanding of security. There are uh, nonprofit organizations like the SANS Institute that do an excellent job of creating security awareness and getting certification and training from that type of uh, organization is is a great first start. Since we've talked quite a bit about the Internet of Everything, uh, what do you think the public should keep in mind uh, looking at developments? What's a key development that they should be quite mindful of? Well, you know, with every uh, positive step of technology, there's always potentially negative um, side effects. Those side effects can be uh, reliability or availability of electronics we know uh, can have challenges from time to time and also you know privacy that sometimes to get uh, these improvements in uh, uh, in in time efficiency or money savings, there's a bit of privacy you have to give up by having you know video or data about your house stored on a on a server on the internet some uh, somewhere. And so that's what uh, what people need to think about is what are they giving up for every benefit that they're gaining, and what constructive steps should they take to protect themselves more to enhance their security. Well, unlike off-the-shelf computing where there are steps that a consumer can take, this is really going to come down to the manufacturers themselves getting these systems right and having them 
uh, able to be patched and updated. So really it's putting pressure on the uh, on the vendors that are providing these services is the main way. It's not very easy for a consumer to add on additional security like they have been able to do with home computers. Can you offer some constructive advice to people in terms of uh, password maintenance? Yeah, well, definitely they're uh, using systems where a different path, as we've seen with the uh, the attack you mentioned, uh, using the same password for multiple sites is a very bad idea. And there are services, uh, including one from Trend Micro, where, where you can uh, have a different password used for every site that you access. And those types of services are definitely uh, something people should consider as we see identity compromise occurring more and more. Let's talk a little bit about your business. Um, how is business these days? And is it growing more rapidly in the Asia Pacific than elsewhere? There's certainly tremendous change going on. There's three main changes that are that are affecting Trend Micro and, and that we're benefiting from. One is the whole use of mobile devices and the way that that is changing the way computing is used both in the workplace and in uh, and at home. Um, the second is these advanced threats and new devices uh, and new protection mechanisms that we're putting in place. And the third and most dear to my heart is, uh, is the cloud computing area where the explosive use of computing environments like Amazon Web Services, Microsoft Azure, uh, VMware Hybrid Cloud is occurring in a big way in, in enterprises uh, around the world. And how to help those be done more, more, uh, more securely is an area of significant growth for Trend Micro. Okay, Bill, thanks very much for joining us all the way from Canada. Uh, much appreciated. Bill McGee, Senior Vice President, General Manager, Cloud and Data Center Security at Trend Micro, and I believe in town for a conference. Well, let's go back to our news coverage now with just five minutes before nine o'clock. The High Court has heard that former Chief Secretary Raphael Hoy asked for more than $4 million in consulting fees from a Sonungay property subsidiary back in 2005. That was for services that he did not actually provide in full. An executive admitted that the boss, Raymond Kwok, agreed to pay the fee as what he understood to be a bonus for Mr. Hoy's quote, excellence, excellence, sorry, excellent performance. Maggie Ho reports. Rafael Hui was employed as a consultant to Sun Hongkai Real Estate Agency for a year until March 2005. That's two months before he was named as chief secretary. The jury was told that Mr. Hui sent an invoice for $4,125,000 to the company. As the fees for his services for an 11-month period from April 2005 to February 2006, nine of those months overlapped with his tenure as the chief secretary. Testifying in court, Tang Chek Hin, the department head of internal affairs for Sun Hong Kai Real Estate Agency, said he didn't expect to receive this request. That's because although the terms of Mr. Hoi's original contract ran until February 2006, it had actually been terminated prematurely. Mr. Tang said he therefore sought advice from Raymond Quag, a co-chairman of Sun Hong Kai Properties, who, after thinking for a few seconds, wrote on the invoice, OK, in view of his excellent performance during his consultancy work with us for the past 13 months. A check was subsequently sent out to Mr. Hui, and all the internal records stated the amount as consultancy fees. Questioned by the prosecution, Mr. Tang said he believed the description was a mistake and it was not an accurate record. 
Mr. Tang conceded that no company records had classified the payment as bonus. He said bonuses were confidential matters, and the company would try not to talk about it. When asked how it was recorded in accounting documents, Mr. Tang said he was not in a position to say, as it was outside the scope of his duties. The hearing continues. The Hong Kong Stock Exchange says it expects a much-anticipated Share Connect program with Shanghai to be launched on schedule in October. That's despite some lingering problems over the different legal regimes and tax rules between the two cities. The local bourse is seeking to smooth over some of the bumps in the next couple of weeks as it carries out some test. Runs, but Hong Kong executive, or rather Hong Kong exchanges and clearing chief executive Charles Lee says he can't yet confirm a date for the launch. The regulator need to announce a date. They're the boss, and they will tell you probably two weeks before the actual launch. So, number one, regulator will need to announce a date. Number two, I don't think we will be completely ready until October. We do not want to do it before the Chinese National Day holidays. You don't want to have a new program just start. Literally a few days later, you have a big holiday coming in, and that would create undue risks. We do not want to do anything other than on a Monday, because that gives us the whole market the weekend to prepare and uh, you know get the system ready and uh, you know be able to do a last-minute testing. Mr. Lee urged investors to take their time to decide whether or not to use this to buy A shares in Shanghai. We wanted to make sure a smooth and steady launch is more important than a very big ban. So at the beginning, if the the trading is not a massive, you know, actually is you know uh, we're quite happy to see that. Obviously, if it's turned out to be great, great. If it's a big ban, great. But we actually don't want this to becoming so rushed and so uh, overwhelming. That people actually start to trip over each other, and the system start to develop issues. We want to be really smooth and steady. This is going to be here for a long time, and you have plenty of time to gradually participate and uh, and and figure out how best to leverage it. Charles Lee, the chief executive officer of the Hong Kong Exchanges and Clearing Markets, are just a little bit flat today. Not much movement here in Asia. The dollar is trading at one hundred two point one six yen. The euro one point three three eight U.S. dollars. That's our show for today. Coming up to the news at nine o'clock. Mainly cloudy with showers. The maximum temperature today thirty one degrees. RTHK 